I've been asked a few times this week, are we approaching the battle of Armageddon because of what's taking place in Israel? It's a very good question. It's a fair question. What does the Bible say about all this? Well, the Bible says that there is a battle of Armageddon. It takes place in the valley of Megiddo. For those of us who've traveled to Israel, one of the first stops that we make is at the ancient city of Megiddo, one of the earliest cities of all civilization. There are about 23 times that the city has built upon itself. It's a very fascinating experience archaeologically. But it sits on a hill overlooking the valley of Megiddo. That's a very large valley. And the Bible says that at the battle of Armageddon, which really is not a battle, all the armies come together and then Christ comes and it's over. But when that happens, the Bible says that the blood in the valley will be up to the horse's bridle. It's a lot of blood. It means there's going to be a lot of people there, a lot of soldiers, a lot of nations that will be there as they consolidate. And it all happens in Israel. That's the epicenter. And so all attention is on Israel, of course. Now, is this the beginning? The Bible describes the coming of Christ like the birth of a, a child, the mother giving birth. And there are birth pains, contractions, that are leading up to the coming of Christ. And so these are considered birth pains that are leading up. We know it's going to happen. We know that it's coming. Uh, it's like you know the baby's coming. You see the signs, the baby's coming, right? But uh, we don't know for sure if this is uh, a birth pain, and it could be millenniums before it comes. I don't think it'll be that long. There's too much happening in the world today as everything is pointing to the nation of Israel and God has a special place, as I said last Sunday, for Israel. Now, with that, we really need to be paying attention to what's happening. We need to be prayerful. We need to be uh, uh, studying. We need to know what does the Bible say about the second coming of Christ and what is it that leads up to that. I, I believe that there are signs and indicators that have not yet happened but will happen before Christ comes. And so we're paying attention to that. But the problem that, that I think many Christians are experiencing right now are a couple of things. Number one, they're fearful. You've seen the atrocities. You've heard of them. And look, that has to be dealt with. That can't continue. You can't blame Israel for trying to secure their own land and dealing with Hamas in the way that they are. And... So they've got to get control of that situation. But we see how horrific that is. And, you know, is this going to spread into something larger and cross international borders? I don't know. But again, there are, there's talk of that. So we can become fearful. And the Bible says, as Paul told Timothy, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. So any kind of fear that comes to you is of the devil. That is a demonic spirit if it's fear. Concerned, yes. We're paying attention to it, yes. But we, we need to make sure that we're not living in fear. But the other thing I want to talk about is that, as it relates to our text today, is that we can get so focused on world events and, and world issues, cultural issues, that we lose 
our focus. We get our eyes on the wrong thing. And we're going to see today that the Bible makes it very clear where our focus needs to be in times like this. All right? The, the, the book of Hebrews, part of the context of the book of Hebrews is that they are those who are being persecuted for their faith. And so he's trying to encourage them through Hebrews 11, these who are great heroes of faith, and then in chapter 12 in particular. Now, when the Bible talks about our experience as Christians, that it speaks of it in different metaphors. Paul would talk about in 1 Corinthians 12 that the Christian life is like the physical body. That, that's why the, the, the church is called the body of Christ. Christ is the head, and then there are members of the body. There are these appendages of the body, and that's us. All right, And so the body physically needs to function in a healthy way for it to live, and the church needs to live in a healthy way. And that's why he talks about the body of Christ. Then there's the metaphor of pilgrims that were on this pilgrimage. In the book of Hebrews and 1 Peter, we find this word being used that the Christian life is like we're on a pilgrimage, that we're here uh, for a season of time. This is not our home. We're passing through. Our home is in eternity. The Bible also speaks of the Christian life as a battle. Uh, Paul told Timothy, fight the good fight. This is a good fight. The Christian life is a good fight. We're fighting the enemy. Paul says in Ephesians 6 that we're to put on the spiritual armor of God, that we're in this battle, that the enemy is attacking us with his fiery darts. He's affecting the mind. He's affecting the soul. He's affecting emotionally, mind, will, emotions. He's affecting us physically. He's coming to attack us. And how do we fight that? So he talks about it in terms of a spiritual battle. But here in chapter 12 of Hebrews, he speaks of the Christian life in terms of a race. It's not the only time that he uses this metaphor, but he speaks of it in terms of a race. And so uh, I want to get to that in just a moment. But as we, we think about chapter 11 and chapter 12, uh, I came across this quote, and I, I don't have the source of who, who wrote this, but it was a few years ago, and here's the quote. The hero is known for achievements, the celebrity for well-knownness. The hero reveals the possibilities of human nature. The celebrity reveals the possibilities of the press and media. Celebrities are people who make news, but heroes are people who make history. Time makes heroes, but dissolves celebrities. Now, in Hebrews chapter 11, we don't have a bunch of Christian celebrities. We have true Christian heroes, and this is a very good word for what's happening in the church today. That the church can be guilty of elevating celebrities rather than focusing on being a hero themselves, not to draw attention, but to live the life of a hero, but also to be a hero maker to help others become heroes of the faith, to be champions of the faith, to be winners of the faith so that we're living a successful Christian life. Jesus Christ in chapter 12 was the hero of heroes as we're looking at the heroes of faith. He was not only the greatest hero of all time by what He did on the cross and in His resurrection. Think of it. 
but he is the great hero maker. He's the one who empowers us to be heroes of the faith so that we can live the Christian life in a way that glorifies God and accomplishes his purpose, which is for our good, right? So that's what Christ can do for us. So in light of that, I want to read the passage, two verses that we're going to look at today. Hebrews 12, verse 1, Therefore, in light of all these great heroes of faith in chapter 11, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us and run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Israel, the source, no, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that lay before him endured a cross and despised the shame and has sat down at the right hand of God's throne. Such a rich and powerful passage of Scripture today. Now, what he does is he helps us understand what the Christian life looks like with the metaphor of running a race. And then he helps us see Christ as our example. So how do we do that? Number one, that we need the support of others. When we're running our race of faith, we need the support of others. Notice he says in verse 1 that we're surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. In the context of the passage, he's talking specifically about those in chapter 11. You have these witnesses, these who've gone on before us in chapter 11, these great heroes of faith that are witnesses for us of the faith, that we can live the Christian life, that we can be heroes of the faith. But it's also uh, seen as, in general terms, all of those who've gone on before us in the faith. Not just these in chapter 11, but others that we know. They encourage us in the race that we're running by their faithfulness. There are others who are living today who encourage us. They've not just died and that was an encouragement to us, but there are those living today where we have the support of each other in this race, the body of Christ. fact is, we're not meant to run the race alone, that we're not to live the Christian life in isolation. I think I may have shared before, there's a big difference between running alone and running with others. First of all, that when you run with others, there's accountability that uh, I used to run with a group. Uh, uh, I've done that several times, different groups. And uh, we would start at a certain time, and the rule was, if you're not there, sorry. We're not waiting on anybody. And it, uh, when the time start, we'd, just, we'd start going, and you know, somewhere down the road, some guy would pull up in his car, jump out, and start running with us or whatever else. Uh, you know, We just had a specific time that we would run. So there's, a, there's this accountability for each other. I get up and I go because I know somebody else is expecting me to be there. And we live our Christian life because I wake up and I know that there are others who I'm responsible to as a Christian and those that are uh, uh, responsible to me that we live out our faith this here at this church. I'm accountable to you. I wake up every day knowing I'm accountable to you as part of running the race together. And you're accountable to me. We're in it together. And that's why it gives us permission to hold each other accountable in the life. And, and I can ask you, how are you doing in your, in your uh, life with Christ? And you're asking me, how am I doing? There's great accountability. Secondly, that we learn from one another when we run together. 
we, we learn different uh, means of training. We get injured and we learn how to avoid that, how, how to overcome that, how to heal from that, and all the rest, things that we talk about uh, and move on. We learn from each other. I learn from, from your successes and failures and you learn from me. And that there are those who've gone on ahead of us. They've already experienced what we, what we are experiencing. And they are these witnesses who can encourage us. They were able to have fellowship together. You know, one of the great things about running in a group is you, you build, you build a, a tight group. I just finished being uh, chairman of the board of the trustees at Hannibal. I finished in December. I had my last board meeting Friday. But I spoke in chapel. Lessons learned from the chairman of the board the last two years. And uh, you can go to the website and you can listen to that. And it'll help you understand what I had to deal with the last two years at the school. But one of the points I've made is that one of the lessons I've learned is that I've made friends for life. And you make friends for life when you're in the battle, when you're in the thick of it. And there's a bond that takes place there that will never change. And in the race that we run, there's a bond that we're experiencing together as a church. That's why I believe it's very important that if you're here, you should be a member of our church because there's an accountability there. We're learning from each other, but we have fellowship with one another. That's unique. There's a, there's a closeness that we experience in the body of Christ. It, I, I've, said, I've said this, uh, the difference between running alone and running in a group I'd rather run in a group and say nothing than run by myself and talk to myself while I run. You go crazy that way, all right? And it's a very important point that there's some who are living in isolation in their faith. You may attend here, but you're not connected to the body of Christ. You don't have a group around you that is supporting and encouraging you. And if you're living the Christian life alone, you're going to have a hard time discerning, is that God speaking to me or is that the devil speaking to me? And when you have others around you, they can help you discern, is that God or is that the enemy who is speaking to you? And so the body of Christ is very simple. We run this race together. We need the support of others. Don't do it alone. Get connected. It's a long race. We need each other. Secondly, we need to remove what is unnecessary. Notice in verse 1, let us lay aside every weight. The athlete in that day and time would wear as little as possible and on some occasions wear nothing at all. He didn't want anything to hinder himself from running. could also mean physical weight. It means getting in good shape, the training, the dedication, the commitment that goes through that. In marathon training, for every pound you lose, you um, improve your overall time by one minute. You lose 30 pounds in your training, you're going to improve your race by 30 minutes. And it's true in the Christian life that when we are getting in shape, when we are spiritually exercising the disciplines of our faith, we're growing in those disciplines, that it is helping us remove the things that are unnecessary so that we can improve our running the race. But it primarily means removing those things that distract us, things that are unnecessary. And some of those may be good things, but they're unnecessary. It means evaluating our values, our time, our priorities. Good things, but that's not the most important thing. 
it's moving from good to great, as Jim Collins writes in his book, a business book, and knowing that difference. We also need to avoid obstacles. Notice in verse 1, we lay aside every weight. Then he says, and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Now, what is the sin? The word the is the definite article, not indefinite, not sins or a you know, sin in general, but the sin. What is the sin? Well, nobody knows for sure. There's debate among translators and commentators. Does this mean general sin or does it mean a particular sin? And they're split on this. I think it can mean both. I think it can mean that, of course, any sin can hinder us running the race that God has for us. But if it is the sin, it could mean that there is a particular sin in your life that is holding you back in your spiritual experience. It just, it's a besetting sin. It just continues. You try to overcome it. You can't. And it's just a constant battle, a constant struggle. John MacArthur says that the, the sin that is common to all Christians is the sin of doubt and unbelief. The sin of doubt and unbelief. Why did Israel spend 40 years in the wilderness? The book of Hebrews tells us. One word, unbelief. Unbelief. They didn't believe the spies, the ten spies who said we can take the land. They believed the two spies who said the giant's too big. They'll wipe us out. And so because of that, they wandered for 40 years because of unbelief. Some of you may feel like you've been wandering. Not to embarrass anyone, but that's exactly what happened to Randall. For all these years, he's been wandering in doubt in a wilderness experience. Maritime people call it the doldrums. That's where the winds don't blow on the sea. The ships can't move, those who are by sail. And there, there are Christians who are in the doldrums, and you might be one of those that the wind's not blowing, the ship's not moving. You don't really sense the Spirit of God that's moving in your life. And so that may be the sin that is affecting you right now. You're doubting God. You're doubting His Word. You're not sure what to believe. And if you continue in that vein, Satan has you exactly where he wants you. Notice he says the sin that so easily ensnares us, ambushes us, it entraps us. Now, we have a choice about what is unnecessary, but we don't have a choice about sin. We have to get rid of that. It's an obstacle. And the longer you run, the more dangerous it becomes. The longer the race. You can get tired. You can trip up. You can fall. It's so easy for a toe to catch just a, a half inch of a sidewalk, and you're down on the ground. You didn't get the foot up. You're tired. You just, you just lost some energy there. It can happen spiritually. Just enough that trips us up and causes injury. We have to always be on guard. And the longer we're in it, we may take our spiritual strength for granted. We forget how weak we really are. I've said this before. It only takes one or two bad decisions to really mess up your life. Not, not a dozen of them, but one or two. And that's why we've got to be on point, particularly the older that we are in the faith. Then notice also you have to run the race. Well, that sounds obvious, but he says run. It's not a walk. It's not a jog. 
It's not occasionally. It's not haphazardly. It's not when I feel like it. The gun goes off at the point of salvation, and you are running the race. You run. Notice he says with endurance. It's better translated with patient endurance. Whenever you finish a marathon, they, they'll print out their results and you'll have the name and the time or you'll have the name and DNF. Did not finish. Did not finish. There are those who have emotional starts in the Christian life, but they fade out. It didn't take. The seed fell on four different types of soil. Three did not take. One did. I'm not trying to create doubt today. I'm just helping us understand the seriousness of the Christian life and whether or not we're really in the race and we're running the race. Notice in chapter 10, verse 36, he talks about patiently enduring. Chapter 11 is all the examples of those who ran with patient endurance. Chapter 12, verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, verse 7, all use that phrase, patient endurance. The writer of Hebrews is trying to help us see the picture of how the Christian life is to be lived. It's patient endurance. It's a steady pace. You get locked in on a pace and you continue to run it. You don't sprint and quit, sprint and quit. It's just a constant pace that you patiently endure. Some people believe that when they have laid aside a weight, when they've overcome some hindrance in their life, given up a bad habit, they've done something good. It's very helpful for runners to get in shape and go through all that training and self-denial. But then when you get to the start line and the gun goes off, what good is it if you don't run? You just stand there, look around, everybody else takes off, but why go through all that? If you run with endurance, you'll realize that all the self-sacrifice, the self-denial, won't be that. It'll be joy. It'll be a blessing. Notice also there's fuel for the finish. Verse 2, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith. In a subtle way, he's making a comparison between the first Adam and the second Adam. First Adam in the garden, second Adam being Jesus. The first Adam started well, but didn't finish. D and F. The second Adam started and has finished the race for us. He's the ultimate example. His was a three-year marathon. Highly intensive, self-sacrifice, self-denial, constantly running his race. I want you to notice what he says here in this verse. Jesus is, first of all, our focus. He says, keeping our eyes on Jesus. It's also translated, looking away unto Jesus. I like that. I'm looking away from everything else and only looking unto Jesus. I'm not going to let anything distract me. World events, the cultural norms of society that are changing around us, all those issues, I am focusing on Christ. Notice also, he is the source. Our eyes are not on the witnesses. They're examples unto us, but that's not the source. 
of our help and our power, our strength. They can't help us. Jesus is the only one who can do that. He's also our perfecter. That means completer, finisher, captain, champion. That's who He is. Now, why should we focus? Why should we keep our eyes on Jesus? Well, number one, because of who He is. He's our source and perfecter. Number two, because of what He did, He endured a cross. And number three, because of where He is today. He reigns at the right hand of God's throne. Why should Jesus be our focus? Well, He answers it Himself in verse 3. For consider him who endured, there's that word again, such hostility from sinners against himself so that you won't grow weary and lose heart. If Jesus endured his cross, we can too. Paul says in Galatians, do not grow weary in well-doing for in due season you will reap if you don't give up. So the harvest is coming. The reward is coming. God is going to bless your life by doing the right thing. It's hard for young people to understand that. The sacrifices that you're making now for the Christian life for Jesus Christ will be worth it one day. It may cost you something and some people today, but in the end, you'll experience God's blessing. Notice also that we're to be motivated by the reward. Verse 2, Who for the joy that lay before Him endured a cross... And despised the shame and has sat down at the right hand of God's throne. Notice there are two joys that he's defining here. First of all, it's the joy of finishing the race. The exaltation that comes from finishing, which he finished. And his glorifying God while he ran the race. The same thing will happen for us. We have the opportunity to glorify God while we're running. Let me say it this way. Do people know you're running the race? Do they see you out there running the race? Do they know you're living the Christian life? Is there a witness, is there testimony of Christ in you, the hope of glory? Do they realize that you're different? They may not know it's Christ, but they see that you're running a different race than they're running. They have a goal and a means to that goal That is far different than your goal and the means to which you're trying to reach that goal. Do they see that as you're running the race? So you can glorify God today while you're running the race. The reward is not just at the end, it's today. Notice also, he says, the joy of sitting down at the right hand of God's throne. Now that phrase, the right hand of God's throne, points us back to the ascension of Christ. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, and he also wrote the book of Acts. They follow each other. At the end of Luke, you have this ascension. Jesus is leaving. What does that mean? He died. He was buried. He rose again for 40 days. He he walked on the earth in Galilee. And the the disciples saw him. Paul says over 500 saw him. It was no small group. There was great witnesses who saw him. And then he ascends to be with the Father. So you have that, and then in the book of Acts, the first chapter, he talks about it again. In the book of Luke, at the end, he's, he has his hands in the air, he's giving a farewell speech as he goes. There's not much said there, but in the book of Acts, it's the same ascension, but it's a different perspective. He speaks of a new era, of a new power. You'll receive the Holy Spirit. 
a new purpose, you will be my witnesses. And then he speaks of the return of Christ. Now, what happens there? There are two, two people who are there. Some believe there are two angels. Some believe it's Moses and Elijah because both of them were at the transfiguration. That's different from the ascension. The transfiguration happened earlier in Christ's ministry. Moses and Elijah show up, and they're having this conversation with Jesus about what's about to happen when he goes to the cross. And some of the disciples are there in awe of what they're experiencing. And then these two guys say, the same way he just left is the same way he's coming back, which means he's coming back in a very specific and real way. Now, Christ has ascended. He's sitting at the right hand of God on his throne. Now, how does that help us keep our eyes on him? This is a really important point. If he's at the throne, sitting on the, his throne next to God, uh, focusing on him while he's sitting on the throne, how does that help me? Well, first of all, we do need to notice that he is the enthroned Christ. He's not just resting while he is sitting. It means much more than that. At the right hand means he is fully engaged, energetically engaged, not just with God and His will and His kingdom purpose, but with us. We see with Him on the throne that He is fully God and fully man. There are a lot of little boys who were named Jesus in that day and time. And so we see the man Jesus who lived on the earth, but now He's on a divine throne. It is deity. So this little boy who came from God... Christ in the flesh is now sitting on the throne as the king. Stephen said, look, as he's being martyred, stoned to death, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Affirming his faith, he sees Jesus. But what, what, a, what a scene. It gives validity to his commitment to Christ as he sees Jesus, not sitting but what he sees is Jesus rising and standing in honor of Stephen's faith as he does for all of you who are being persecuted for your faith in some form or fashion. He's not sitting when that happens. He's standing watching. Man, that's encouraging. He's paying attention to what's happening in your life. So the man is lifted up to glory, which was with the Father before creation ever existed. Jesus sitting down at the right hand of God means He's also our mediator. He's our intercessor through prayer. And what that means is as intercessor, it's not just about words that Jesus is speaking to God. It's about His relationship with us. It's about our salvation in Him, the power, the love that He gives us. So it's not just prayers in His mediatory work, but it is a relationship. The enthroned Christ has also gone to prepare a place for us. He's not preparing it just for when we die, but while we live, that gives us hope. It gives us boldness. So we see the enthroned Christ. It's not a small thing. He's not just sitting there. Secondly, we see the present Christ. Jesus said, I'm with you always. That promise is realized by the fact that He has ascended and He's on the throne. It means that He truly is alive and by His Spirit, He is with me. We have the real presence of Christ in our heart by faith. 
He's present with us, enthroned in heaven, but He's near the brokenhearted, the humble-hearted, the lonely-hearted. Christ is with you. Isn't it great to know we will never live or die alone? Recently, I've either done a funeral or have known three people close to me who have died, all three believers. And what joy it is. It's joy. God's joy to know that while they were here, He was with them. And at the moment of their death, He was there and transported them into His presence. What great joy. I'm thinking of a man who died recently. And as he died, an unbeliever who had nothing to do with God, he sat up and he looked up and in essence said, Oh, no, and died. Now that means he either saw heaven's throne and he knew he was in real trouble or he saw hell itself in that moment. Look, what happens after we die is real. And when you wait till then, it's too late. What you believe today determines where you're going to spend eternity. What you do today determines the quality of that experience. And so if you're not sure, you need to get that right today because it is real. And I thank God that as He has ascended and He is on the throne, that means that He is alive and that through His Spirit, He is with me. I will not live alone. I will not die alone. What about you? Notice also the working Christ. Again, the attitude of Jesus sitting on the throne suggests that he's resting. What, what, what do you think? What, what, what picture comes to your mind of Jesus sitting on his throne? Head in his hand, on his el elbow, on his knee, just hanging out. Hey, looking around. People coming by saying, I love you, Jesus. I mean, what, what, what's really going on there? He's at work. He's just not sitting there. Notice what, what Mark's account is of the ascension. Listen to what he says. Then after speaking to them, the Lord Jesus was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And then they went out and preached everywhere. Here it is. The Lord working with them and confirming the word by the accompanying signs. He says he's sitting down at the right hand of God, but what? The Lord working with them. In your Bible, it says the acts of the disciples. That's really a misnomer. It's the acts of Jesus through the disciples. Jesus didn't stop working when he died. He is working today through us in expanding the kingdom of God. Resting means he completed his purpose. The Bible says that God created for six days and then he rested on the seventh day. Does that mean he fell asleep? He was tired? He's worn out? No, it means he ceased from creating and he celebrated the work that he had done. Jesus has been celebrating the work that he has done on earth for us. We should celebrate that. That's what we do when we come in here on Sunday. 
We're celebrating the work that He has done for us. He's sitting at the right hand of God, but He's working. Christ is working for us, on us, in us, with us, and through us. But notice finally the returning Christ. You know, the ascension is not the last event. Jesus didn't leave and run into a cul-de-sac in heaven. He's coming back. He's going to return. He will come as he left, those two men said, bodily, visibly, locally. What does that mean? His feet are going to touch in Israel. That's why we need to pay attention to what's going on. He's going to walk through the eastern gate. There's a lot I could say about that right now. They've sealed up the eastern gate because they don't want Jesus walking through the eastern gate. You know what's going to happen? He's going to blow right through it. That's what's going to happen. The world is going to see. The skies are going to open. And Jesus is going to appear. But he's going to land in Israel. So we pay attention to what he's doing. You see, he is the hope of the church. He's the hope for Israel, for Jews, for Palestinians, for Arabs, for Muslims, for communists, for, for, for whoever, for America, for Cape Girardeau. He's your hope, this returning Christ. Jesus is enthroned. Have you humbled yourself in full surrender to Him? Jesus is present. Are you walking in constant communion with Him? Jesus is working. Do you trust His work in you? Do we trust His work in His church, in this church? Because I believe He's working. We need to trust Him. Jesus is returning. Will He find you faithful? Would you bow your head and close your eyes? There might be somebody here today who would say, Pastor, I really don't know for sure about my eternal security. I've been living in the doldrums. I've doubted seriously whether or not I really know the Lord. Well, you need to talk to somebody about that. and you need to, We need to get that right. It may mean you, you are a believer, but you're just struggling. But it might mean that you've never sincerely truly given your heart to Christ as Lord and Savior. So why go through another minute, another hour, another day living that way? Satan's got you right where he wants you. You've been rendered ineffective for God's purpose. But that can all change today. There are some you know you've never done this, and you need to do it today. So we want to help you do that. When we sing this next song, you can come to one of the pastors and we'll help you as you give your heart to Christ. There might be others who are here and you know the Lord, but there is the sin that's holding you back. It could be several. There are uh, unnecessary things in your life that are distracting you from experiencing the fullness of Christ in your life and serving His purpose. Well, he says we need to remove that. Get it off. Get it away. So today, you can just at the foot of the cross, leave it all before the Lord. 
Even if you're not sure, ask the Lord, Lord, show me if there's something going on in my life that's really not necessary or a sin that is entangling me, it's tripping me up. Because look, again, ensnare means in ambushed or entrapped. We don't want the enemy to get us in that place. There might be some that God is leading you to become part of our church family. Again, we need the support of each other. We need encouragement. We need to learn from one another. We need that accountability. And if God is moving in your heart to do so, we would love to have you part of our church family. There might be others that you just need a quiet moment here at the altar or maybe you want someone to pray for you. You let us know and we'll do that. God, I thank you that we do have the hero of heroes. It's not just a story we read about in books. It's not just movies we watch that have been made about this hero. But he is in us. We can know him personally. We can experience his power, resurrection power in us. And God, I pray that you help these who need to follow you in faith and obedience. As these were faithful and obedient to you in Hebrews 11. Christ being the ultimate example of that. May we too do that today. In Jesus' name, amen.